and welcome to episode 1836 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, it's been a busy week in the MLB culture wars. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, I am reeling from some of the discourse, and we're going to contribute to that discourse today, I think. But we had back-to-back days of just trailblazing, groundbreaking baseball debates. Baseball is dying. Baseball is over. Maybe some of those debates were a bit blown out of proportion, but I think it was kind of a fascinating week. First with the Giants really sort of settling new territory when it comes to unwritten rules and enthusiastically breaking them. And then on Wednesday, the day after that whole kerfuffle, we got Dave Roberts pulling Clayton Kershaw from a perfect game after seven innings, which uh, was a kind of controversial decision, wouldn't you say? I would, I would classify it as kind of controversial. I guess. I guess it's kind of controversial. I mean, look, I understand that people wanted to see Clayton Kershaw try to throw a perfect game. I, too, wanted to see Clayton Kershaw try to throw a perfect game. But I think a couple of things about this. The first is Clayton Kershaw seemed fine with not trying to throw a perfect game to completion. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure he wanted to, but as he said in his remarks after the game, like, you know, he wasn't ready. He wasn't stretched out to try to do that. This is a guy who missed big chunks of last year with injury and one whose late season injury meant that he was not able to pitch in the postseason and who is not 20 anymore and who is trying to return, you know, the the championship trophy to Los Angeles. And so, you know, like, I think that you have to think about what a guy's going to be able to do in October and that's what the Dodgers want and that seems to be what Clayton Kershaw wants I also suspect that like if Clayton Kershaw Clayton Kershaw future Hall of Famer Dodgers legend if Clayton Kershaw had said to Dave Roberts and I don't know if Clayton Kershaw swears so I'm going to do Meg (laughs) interpreting Clayton Kershaw and Clayton (laughs) I'm, I'm very sorry if you find this offensive or if this isn't the way that you would speak to Dave Roberts or or what have you. But I think that if Clayton Kershaw had walked into that dugout and said, Dave, I'm going back out there, that he would have gone back out there. Like it's Clayton Kershaw, right? If he had wanted to press the point, I suspect that that franchise legend Clayton Kershaw could have done it. But mm-hmm. instead he was like, yeah, I I can, I'm, I'm content with my perfect 80 pitches. I mean, he said after the fact that he wasn't able to go 100 that he couldn't have even gone 90. So I think it's, you know, we should remember that like real people are involved in these decisions and while we might want to see things like if they tell us it's okay it's probably fine so this mm-hmm. one seems fine i thought you were going to talk about whether you know a foul tip is a whiff like that was the other <laughs> one that oh, tried boy. to take the internet by storm I'm not gonna wade into that territory <laughs> too controversial for this <laughs> no, pod that's, that's the third rail yeah we may have discussed that on this podcast previously actually I'm sh- but almost certain that we have <laughs> i think so yes and i won't wade into those waters again but Okay, I have a lot of thoughts. Tell me your <laughs> so, thoughts. So I, I have some other banter, but I'll I'll save it. We're we're just getting into this. This is the newsy subject it. here. We'll yeah. we'll backlog some banter perhaps. But sure. while we're on the topic of the day and the week. So Kershaw. I, I yeah. think there was a, a different reaction in the moment before we had all the facts, right? Sure. Before we heard from all the parties involved. <laughs> there was a, a tremendous uproar and wailing and gnashing of teeth and condemnation of Dave Roberts. And the first thing I'll say is that 
almost no decision these days is just unilaterally a managerial move. So when everyone is saying Dave Roberts, Dave Roberts, yes, Dave Roberts has been the author or at least the co-author of many a confounding managerial decision in his day. But Dave Roberts has been the Dodgers manager for a long time. He was recently extended to continue to be the Dodgers manager. And just about every team now, the manager is not the field general anymore, not even the field lieutenant necessarily. It's like the field sergeant, maybe, you know, he has input, certainly, but he is executing the directives often, or at least it's a collaborative decision. So if Dave Roberts is the one actually executing the move, pulling the pitcher, he is not doing that without any input, first of all, from Clayton Kershaw and his players and his fellow coaches, but also some guidance from the front office, almost certainly, right? So I think it's a dramatic simplification of any debate of this type to say, oh, you know, blame the manager or praise the manager. The manager is just a cog in the larger decision-making apparatus at this point. So that's a, a small point, I would say. The other thing is that Of course, I was disappointed to see Clayton Kershaw leave that game. I I think, you know, everyone was. I mean, even if there was a large part of you saying, this makes sense, it's justifiable, I get it, discretion is the better part of valor, obviously, there's a part of you that just wants to see Clayton Kershaw go for the perfect game. Yeah. Of course. And I will say that while we can lament that he didn't get to go back out there for the eighth or the ninth We could also just celebrate the fact that Clayton Kershaw pitched seven perfect innings and looked incredible. I mean, he wasn't back to peak Clayton Kershaw. He was still throwing 90 out there, but it was working because he has that great slider and he's able to locate it and sequence in such a way that he's now like a slider first pitcher and it's still a really effective pitch, even though it's slower than it was. So I know it wasn't the A lineup necessarily for the Twins. Correa was out, but he was just carving up those hitters. And we didn't know for sure that we would see Kershaw in a Dodgers uniform again or that we would see him at all again, frankly. And so to see him not necessarily with his vintage stuff, but with his vintage results for seven innings was an unexpected treat. So we should not let what we lost or what we could have potentially gained take away from just how much fun it was to see him at the top of his game more or less again. So that's something. Yeah. I would also say that the debate about what this means for the soul of baseball and the stat heads are ruining baseball and this is why baseball is no fun anymore saw a whole lot of baseball is dying points made. And I get it. It was reactive and reflexive and people were disappointed. And there is a real change here. Like this would not have happened in an earlier era. That's why both of these things are interesting to me. The unwritten rules, comments, and Kershaw being pulled, they're emblematic, I think, of where we are in the sport today in some ways. These are things that would not have been said, would not have happened prior to now or the past few years. But I think people were kind of conflating the analytics debate with just the pitcher health and injury prevention debate, right? I mean, this was not the Blake Snell situation where you're pulling someone who is quote-unquote cruising because he's uh, approaching the third time through the order or something like that. It's not that. It's a totally different debate. I guess you could say that those are related in some way. They have both contributed to a decline in starting pitcher innings and earlier hooks. 
But this is a totally different decision, a totally different set of circumstances. And as you said, cold day, off-injured pitcher, 34 years old, didn't throw a ball for the first few months of the offseason because he didn't know if his arm was going to work anymore. You know, injuries to his shoulder and his back and his forearm. And there was even concern that maybe he'd have elbow issues. He'd have to have Tommy John or something like he wasn't even sure if he was going to come back. That was reported to be one of the reasons why he did not want a qualifying offer. He didn't want to have to make that decision then because he didn't know if physically he was going to be in shape to return. And because you had to compress spring training and he hadn't been built up all the way on and on. I mean, there are so many reasons, right? But you can still say it was disappointing and it was deflating to see him leave that game. I think it's just the degree to which you then extrapolate that to make some larger point about baseball dying or the values that the sport now has as a whole or where you blame it on analytics, the boogeyman. That's where you kind of lose me. So I think it really depends on the degree of your animosity toward this decision and what you think it symbolizes. It does symbolize something, but maybe not what everyone was saying it symbolized. Yeah, I think, you know, here I will I will reference Jay Jaffe's piece about this for us at Fangraphs. You know, Kershaw had a PRP injection in yeah. October of last year. He didn't start throwing again until January. You know, he had three Cactus League starts this spring and then a, a sim game on April 7th. So like he he was not which was the day before the Dodgers opener against Colorado, like he he was not fully stretched out and he's far from the only one like through Tuesday here I am quoting Jay no starter had pitched more than seven innings in a single game only five out of 150 had gone more than six and only six had topped 90 pitches like it is it is not as if we are in a moment where these guys are ready we have 28 man rosters for a reason right now like we are doing collectively everything we can to try to preserve these guys health in another weird year you know two out of the last three have been strange so I think that it's fine to feel disappointed that he wasn't given the opportunity to go the distance but I think that that is you know underestimating how unlikely it was that he would have done that perfect or not and the point is not just to enjoy Kershaw for one day and, you know, 20 extra pitches, but to enjoy him for an entire season. And I don't know, like, he didn't look upset on the broadcast. Like, I understand that we didn't no, have the, the the context of, of this conversation that, that Roberts and Kershaw, and I think you're right to say probably a great many other people employed by the Los Angeles Dodgers <laughs> were having in the lead up to the decision to pull him. But, you know, he wasn't gnashing his teeth and wailing in the dugout either. Like, he had his jacket on and looked warm for the first mm-hmm. time all day, perhaps. So... I don't know. I I get it. Like we we it's so easy to assume that the thing that we didn't get to see would have been incredible, right? We are mm-hmm. we we assume. We just assume that like Kershaw would have gone out there and he would have finished the perfect game and we would have been able to tell this incredible story of this guy who had this set of facts before him and defied them but we don't think about you know whether he would have given up a a, you know a base hit to to end the perfecto or if he would have grabbed his elbow you know Mm -hmm. like we don't we don't consider that part of it so i get it but i think you're right that even if we are living in that feeling we need to recognize that it doesn't have to extend beyond that moment it doesn't have to say something about the game it just says something about a guy who we all have a, a great deal of affection and respect for, 
but who is, you know, 34 and and a new 34, by the way. So like a ha- happy belated birthday, Clayton Kershaw, but who is 34 and is in the phase of his career where you you really want to think carefully about how best to maximize his availability. And this is a team that, you know, among the contenders really does need to think about keeping their guys healthy and keeping their starters available because they are not, you know, gifted with the depth that they had in prior seasons in the rotation. Like they have to be really mindful of that. So I get, I get feeling disappointed, but I think that, you know, this was, this was the smart call and no, no less a luminary than Clayton Kershaw is giving you permission to feel okay about it. So you can let that (laughs) in. It's fine. Yeah, and, you know, he almost certainly wouldn't have finished it off. I mean, the odds are are low. Like, he he could have. There was a realistic chance, but he said his slider was losing bite, although it still seemed to be effective. He was losing a little velocity. The last batted ball he gave up on the last out he got was quite hard hit. And so he said it was time, and Austin Barnes, his catcher, said it was time. And so, you know, odds are if he goes out there again, he probably loses it. Now, still, we were, I guess you could... Could say robbed, deprived of the chance to see him finish it. So sure. I, I'm sitting here and saying, yeah, the actuarial tables and the statistical <laughs> probabilities. Yeah, I get it. Like that's why perfect games are fun and exciting and yeah. rare. And you want to see someone get a chance to do it. But I think, you know, you had a, an earlier generation of great players who were weighing in on this and bemoaning this. So on Twitter, for instance, Reggie Jackson in an exclamation point and all caps filled tweet. <laughs> said Clayton Kershaw perfect game 80 pitches take him out five exclamation points what the what's the game coming to one of the areas best and you take him out with a perfect game in the seventh seven to nothing Dodgers winning take him out this is baseball please people that have never played get out of its way so I don't know who he's referring to there. I guess the the eggheads in the front office who are uh, dictating this policy to Dave Roberts, supposedly, maybe. But Dave Roberts played the game. <laughs> and yeah. Clayton Kershaw plays the game. And they all seem to be on board with this decision. And Fergie Jenkins, the Hall of Fame pitcher, tweeted, not even if I had a broken arm and had to roll the ball over the plate, am I leaving a perfect game in, in the seventh? And okay. <laughs> look, I mean, that is uh, there's truth to that. Like in that era, sure. 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 No one would have come out of this game. And entertainment-wise, there are advantages to that. And we've been open about that. We've yeah. talked about the fact that we don't love the diminishment of the starting pitcher no. and the fact that the starting pitcher can be the protagonist of the game and be a big part of the story and seeing the pitcher adjust and go through the lineup multiple times and pull out new tricks from the bag. Like, that can all be much more fun than seeing just another interchangeable reliever get into the game. So I am absolutely sympathetic to that. And I am also sympathetic I'll say a couple things. Just one, as a species, we don't do a great job with delayed gratification in general. So if you're telling me, hey, you don't get to see Clayton Kershaw go for the perfecto right here, but just wait till October and maybe we'll get Clayton Kershaw going for another World Series championship instead of, you know, Clayton Kershaw being out for October as he was last year, right? Okay, so maybe if he's healthy at that point, we'll look back and say it was for the best that we didn't push him there because now we're getting to enjoy Clayton Kershaw on this big stage. That said, 
the Dodgers goals don't necessarily align with mine or with most fans. I mean, I want to see Clayton Kershaw pitch a perfect game more than I want to see the Dodgers win another World Series. So there's that. I'm not saying we all have to have the same desires as the Dodgers, but we do, I suppose, have to put ourselves in their place and see how they came to this decision. The other point where I'm maybe most sympathetic with the people who were really crushing this move is that it can be tough to discern the actual effect and the preventative power of pulling a pitcher after 80 pitches, let's say, instead of 100 pitches. Like to some degree, there's a little bit of junk science that goes into that. Like we we don't know. We, We don't know how to quantify that. Maybe teams do a better job of quantifying that, but obviously a far from perfect one. And so we have the bird in the hand, which is Clayton Kershaw getting to go for a perfect game, which is super exciting to all of us. And then the bird in the bush is like, well, maybe he doesn't get hurt down the road because he doesn't throw 20 extra pitches and he doesn't put that extra wear and tear on his arm when he's not built up. Like, we'll never know, right? We'll never know whether this prevented an injury or made it less likely that he would suffer an injury in the future. There's just no perfect correlation there. I mean, the more you play, the more you throw, the more wear and tear there's going to be, but... People were comping this to the Johan Santana game, right, where he stayed in to pitch the first franchise no-hitter for the Mets and threw 130-something pitches and then got hurt not long after. I will say I think that is somewhat oversimplified. He did have some good games after that no-hit attempt, so it wasn't like he broke the next day, but it was you know, not long after that, and perhaps there was an effect. Maybe it wasn't quite as clear a, a cause-and-effect relationship as we think there, but you could say, well, Santana, he got hurt a lot too. He was getting up there in years. Maybe it's for the best that he had that last signature moment. He got that no-hitter because if he had been pulled – There's no guarantee that he would have gone on to pitch many more years and uh, make it into the Hall of Fame. I mean, he very may well have gotten hurt (laughs) at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. We'll never know. And because he got to go for it, he got that special moment in his career and for Mets fans' career. So I do see that case. And and it's possible that we've gone too far. Like, I think there's definitely a benefit to cutting down on real instances of pitcher abuse and doing the Doc Gooden and, you know, throwing 140, 150 more pitches at a young age. Like, those sorts of things, it seems like there was a pretty clear relationship between really piling up pitches and innings on a young pitcher's arm and then subsequent injuries. But now that we've gotten to the point where, you know, 100 is often a hard limit, I mean, it's not clear that that is totally justified. You know, yeah. we're, we're now just limiting pitchers to the point that I don't know that anyone knows that this is working. Like, it's clearly not working in the sense that pitchers get hurt constantly. So, you know, they're throwing max effort a lot, and that leads to injury risk even if they're not throwing as many pitches. So that's the only reservation. It's like we've traded this attempt at a special moment and the chance at getting a perfect game and that indelible memory for possibly probably some injury prevention boost but no one really knows how much and we can't quantify it and we'll never know if it actually made a difference so that's the only thing like have we gone too far because this was 80 pitches as opposed to 130 something although 
we covered all of the other reasons why 80 pitches in this case was more than it would have been later in the season or for some other pitcher. I think that's all fine. Like, yeah, but also (laughs) this is fine. Like, I, I guess that it would read really differently to me if if this same set of circumstances minus the proximity to an abbreviated spring training were playing out much later i mean i thought that what what david cohen said on the yankees broadcast later that night was was a smart way of thinking about this where he said the problem for managers is that you have to make the decision after the seventh inning because if you allow him to go out and pitch the eighth inning then you can't stop it if he's perfect after eight he's only three outs away and he might be over 100 pitches then you have a real quandary and i think you're right that like we perhaps look at the hundred pitch like ceiling as as too both firm a ceiling in terms of its strength and also too firmly supported in terms of the specific science but i think that the idea that this was this was sort of the the last moment at which roberts could say okay we can make a change here because if if he is looking at the ninth inning and he is anywhere close to 100 he's just going back out there like there's no stopping that now maybe you think that the risk calculus is too conservative to say that that's a problem because like maybe he just goes back out and maybe he gets three pop-ups and then he has a perfect game and that's great i don't know i just i'm i'm having a hard time being exercised about this because clayton kershaw seems fine (laughs) right (laughs) Right. like if clayton were mad i would feel mad for him Mm -hmm. because he like he knows I mean, he knows what it's like to stare down a potentially historic performance and then have it like kind of come apart because of, well, an error the last time, right? Not not potential injury, but like he knows what it's like to be on the precipice of doing something really spectacular and then not having it materialize. And like he seems fine. So I don't know. I just... Like, I think it's fine because yeah, I, he doesn't think, seem angry. Right. Well, Kershaw's attitude, I think, makes it tough to blame Roberts, let's say. Yeah. You could still lament that that oh, is sure. his attitude as opposed to the Fergie Jenkins just, you know, gritted out and pitched as long as you can kind of attitude of an earlier era. I guess. Because maybe that's a little less entertaining. Or, you know, like we've done podcasts about these kind of decisions before, not just in the playoffs, but with the Dodgers for sure. that matter with oh, very yeah. similar situations. I mean, I remember doing a, an emergency episode with Sam and Andy McCullough when Dave Roberts pulled Rich Hill after yeah. seven perfect innings, episode 952 back in 2016. And then shortly before that, I guess it was that same season, Roberts pulled Ross Stripling right. from the chance to have a no-hitter in his Major League debut. He had one going after seven of the third innings. And I can't recall exactly what we said at the time, but I, I think maybe Sam said something along the lines of, who knows what Ross Stripling's career will turn out to be and maybe this would have been the most memorable moment of his career like you never know you could make the case that with some pitchers I mean Philip Humber's perfect game or something like that like that's what you remember that guy for and so there could be times where it's like it's worth it (laughs) you know like maybe he'll get hurt but at least he'll have this one timeless moment where he is perfect and he will always be remembered for that And with Kershaw, he has so many accomplishments. I mean, he has a no-hitter. He's got a ring. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's won three Cy Young. So in a sense, you could say he doesn't need any additional accolades or accomplishments. It's Clayton Kershaw. He's done almost everything in this game. 
On the other hand, I guess you could say, well, because it was Kershaw, it just would have been so much fun in a the old guys still got it, yeah. Tiger Woods winning the Masters kind of way, right? Climbing the peak again after you thought that he was on the downside of his career. So because it was Kershaw, I think we cared more than we would have if it had been some generic pitcher. And, you know, I saw people who were upset seemingly in the moment that Roberts didn't immediately bring in his top bullpen arms, like go to Blake Trinan or something to preserve the perfect game, which to me is mostly meaningless. I mean, I don't really care about the combined no hitters or even the combined perfect games. It's just, you know, I I think if you're going to pull the guy who is going for it, then at that point you have demonstrated that you are putting the long-term needs of the team ahead of any individual accomplishment or even team accomplishment of a perfect game. And so if you're going to save your back-end arms for a higher leverage situation, fine. I, I didn't, to me, it's like once Kershaw was pulled from that yeah. game, all of the stakes just immediately subside. So that I couldn't have cared less about, really. But, you know, like if you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, it's as simple as this. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whenever, the guy would have gone for a perfect game. And we would have gotten to enjoy that together. And it would have been a whole lot of fun whether he made it or not. And now we don't get that. And you're telling me that the trade-off is, well, maybe it will help Clayton Kershaw stay healthy. Maybe it will help the Dodgers win in the long run. But we'll never know. I get it. I understand why people don't love that change. But... You know, you just do have to acknowledge that I think the Dodgers, it wasn't just like some stat heads run rampant and run roughshod over the traditions of the game and and they hate baseball. You know, there was a, a calculus there that, like a lot of changes in the game, makes sense on some level for players, for teams aren't always the most spectator-friendly outcomes, unless you think that it made such a difference that this will prolong Clayton Kershaw's career and we will get to enjoy more Clayton Kershaw starts in the future because he didn't use up his pitches in this particular outing. Didn't Ross Stripling's dad thank Dave Roberts for pulling his kid? (laughs) I I don't recall the specifics, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, And, you know, he's gone on to have a, a decent career. I mean, he hasn't thrown a no-hitter, so you could say it was an opportunity lost, but Stripling at the time said, no problem, right call, it's the right thing to do. So, I mean, he was a rookie in his major league debut, so maybe he didn't have the standing to storm off the mound the way that Rich Hill did. Like, there was some miscommunication in the Rich Hill. Yeah, like, he, he came to terms with it after the game, but in the moment, like, you know, it wasn't communicated that clearly, and I think Roberts made some mea culpas after the fact for how he handled that, so... That was definitely a different reaction, and it's a different guy, and it's a different time, and maybe it also reflects the fact that that was six years ago, and the norms have shifted even since then. Yeah, I mean, like, Stripling was, you're right to say he was a rookie, he was in his first major league start, he'd also missed all of 2014 and 15, recovering from Tommy John surgery, and had topped out, it's so nice to have Jay having written about this because I sound like I know all these details from memory and I super don't. Thanks, Jay. He had topped out at 78 pitches in spring training that year and his dad did in fact thank him. He said, and here I am quoting from an AP piece from 2016. One of the cool things I experienced this morning was Ross's dad was down in the lobby today and just sought me out and he came up to me really kind of emotional and just thanked me from him and his wife for looking out for their son. When you have a father and mother who know their kid's story and what he's endured to get here, they 
enjoyed that moment more than anyone for him to say thank you for taking care of my son's future and our family. I'll have him and his wife's support forever. I felt good about it regardless of that, but to kind of get the parent stamp of approval is always a good thing. I just, you know, these are these are complicated choices and you're right that our interests and sort of desires as fans are not always aligned with the teams or the players and those interests aren't always aligned and I think that as long as the thought process is is careful and and does take into account sort of the potential impact of that moment and how special that moment can be but is trying to counterbalance the you know, the, the best case scenario is that Clayton Kershaw goes back out there and throws a perfect game. And the worst case scenario is that Clayton Kershaw leaves the mound clutching his elbow. And I think that it's hard for a fan to balance those two things, but that ends up being a pretty easy choice for the franchise. And I don't think that we we need to imply a lot more scientific rigor than exists around like specific pitch counts and knowing exactly when the guy's going to break. And because if we knew that, then like they'd never, ever get hurt because we just would, we'd know. And we'd be like, okay, you can't throw one more today because that's the one that's going to get you. And we, you know, we're not the precogs in minority report. So we just, we do have some guesswork here. I think you're right that teams are further along in that process than the public side is. But, you know, they're not totally sure either. But I don't know. I think it like, Again, Kershaw wasn't mad. Like if he had, if he had been like Rich Hill, my feeling about it might be different. But mm-hmm. we can be disappointed and also be fine. Yeah, I think the level of vitriol varies, and I think. And you know what? If you're not on Twitter, you don't see it. So then you just then it's really fine. So maybe right. the biggest takeaway here is that we should all log off. I mean, the people who should be really mad in all of this are Mariners fans because my one superstitious belief, like really. In my soul, you know, give me true serum and I would tell you this is true, is that they're not making the postseason until someone else throws a perfect game who is a Felix. So the people who should really be mad live in the Pacific Northwest. My only fear now is that Kershaw will get hurt later this year, which is not a bad bet because he tends to miss some time every year, right? And when he goes on the IL with a backache or whatever it is, people will say, oh, see, pulling him early didn't prevent this. And instead, we were deprived of this perfect game attempt and, you know, why you're overthinking it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this comes up again. But sure. I'll just say, you know, I'm I'm mildly disappointed, but I don't think the circumstances support this being a complete referendum on the state of baseball and the downfall of the sport. (laughs) So along those lines, that was the story of Wednesday. Now, the story of Tuesday was also in the NL West, and this was an interesting one. We had the first real unwritten rules flare-up of the season. Every year, I think, this is it. This is going to be the last one, and then we will all just uh, agree to uh, not make a big deal out of this again. But it always comes back up again. But this time, maybe, I've been fooled before, but this like seems a little different. This seems like it could have the potential to really change the conversation here. And I, I know I said that after the Fernando Tatis 3-0 homer and after the initial complaints about that were walked back and it seemed like the tide had turned. But it's still there, and ironically, you have Fernando Tatis Jr.'s team here who's on the other side of this one and making us think about it. Funny how that often happens. But what happened here was the Giants were playing the Padres. They took a big early lead, 
the Giants, that is, and they didn't do the things that the unwritten rules dictate that teams do or don't do. They did not take their feet off the pedal. And so in the second inning, Stephen Duggar stole a base, (laughs) a great sin of stealing a base. I think the score was, what, 10 to 1 at that time. And so that ruffled some feathers. And then in the sixth inning, Mauricio Dubon he had the audacity to lay a bunt down and get a hit. And that angered the Padres. The Padres were not happy about that. You could see it on their bench. You heard after the game that Eric Hosmer quite condescendingly <laughs> gave Debon a, a piece of his mind at first base. Hosmer said after the game, I definitely told him how I felt, how we felt about it. He said it was a sign given to him by their staff. I just told him, I think you've got to be a little smarter in that situation. You've been playing professional ball for a good amount of time. Obviously, if you're at this level, you've got to be smarter than that. Okay, Eric. So this is the the standard party line. I mean, this is a, a tale as old as time, right? You're trying to run up the score. You are still attempting to play baseball and score runs and not make outs. And that is uh, seen as a great transgression Despite the fact that, as usual, the other team was still trying to get those guys out. The Padres were still throwing breaking balls. They were still shifting. (laughs) They were not giving up themselves. And yet the Giants had the audacity to continue to try to win and try to pile up numbers and do their best. And we probably talked about this 10 times before because this kind of debate just constantly resurfaces. Yeah. What was different this time was Gabe Kapler's reaction. And initially, it seemed like... It seemed like Kapler was maybe doing the Jace Tingler sort of thing after Tatis hit his homer, where it seemed like he wasn't happy about it, and Chris Woodward, the Rangers manager, wasn't happy about it. Often, you will see the manager of the player's own team pull that player aside and say something. I mean, Tony Arusa throwing your mean Mercedes under the bus after he homered on 3-0 off of Williams Astadio last season, right? That happens all the time. And so when you saw... Debon go back into the dugout, Kapler pulled him aside, and just without hearing what was said, just knowing that history, that precedent, it seemed like Kapler was giving him a talking to. Maybe he was scolding him too. After the game, we found out that no, that was not the case, that actually the steal and the spunt had been ordered or at least condoned by the giant staff as part of a season-long preset strategy. And Kapler said, I fully support both of those decisions. Our goal is not exclusively to win one game in a series. It's to try to win the entire series. Sometimes that means trying to get a little deeper into the opposition's pen. I understand that many teams don't love that strategy. He went on. He said more about it, but he fully backed up his players and he made it apparent that this is a a team-level decision. He said, I get why teams don't love that strategy. It's something that we talked about as a club before the season and that we were comfortable going forward with that strategy. It's not to be disrespectful in any way. It's because we feel very cool and strategic. (laughs) I don't know. It's the best way to win a series. When I say cool, I mean calm. Ah, okay. We're not emotional about it. We're not trying to hurt anybody. We just want to score as many runs as possible, force the other pitcher to throw as many pitches as possible. If other clubs decide that they want to do the same thing to us, we're not going to have any issue with it. 
If we don't want a team to bunt, we will defend the bunt. If we don't want a team to steal, we will defend the steal. If we don't want a team to swing 3-0 late in the game, we'll throw a ball. And I can't really remember a more ringing repudiation of the unwritten rules than that. I mean, definitely some of the dogma has eased up in recent years and some minds have been changed, like Chris Woodward, for instance, the Rangers manager who didn't like Tatis hitting that home run 3-0 when your mean Mercedes hit his home run 3-0, granted not against the Rangers. He said, Woodward, that he had thought about it and that he changed his mind and that he didn't have a problem with it and that it was fine in today's game. So... I think these attitudes are less entrenched and pervasive and aggressive than they once were. But to see a manager come out and state this so plainly, I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but treating the unwritten rules as a market inefficiency almost and saying like, this is what we do. We are going to exploit the unwritten rules. I can't really remember a manager embracing that so wholeheartedly and a a team just embodying that as their whole ethos. Yeah, I just... (laughs) <laughs> I love this game so much but gosh we're we're sure stuck in the mud about stuff sometimes <laughs> I mean I I was talking about this situation with friend of the podcast Craig Goldstein earlier and I can understand wanting to create for yourself like emotional distance between the disappointment of losing and like the reality of having lost and I just wish that the that the folks who get wound around the axle on this stuff could just come out and say, you know, like, I'm I'm mad we lost. It felt bad. I wish we had won instead mm-hmm. of losing. But there was nothing that San Francisco did here that was like they weren't being they weren't being chumps. Like no one was being a jerk. They were just playing baseball. They weren't doing it like at them you know they were just doing it because that's what they're there to do at the ballpark and i think that it's important in moments like this to like acknowledge that what is what is a terrible feeling for you isn't necessarily the problem of the other person right like it would be one thing if it i i don't even know what it would look like like i'm struggling to think of what it would look like for the giants to be like in the wrong here like what they would have needed to do for me to be like all right guys that's a little much like you're up by a billion runs like you can you can relax but I think you just get to play baseball I think Kapler is right that doing that does press an advantage later in the series and I know that some of the guys on San Diego were like well you know maybe I think it was Will Myers that was like this is inviting other teams to do the same to them in in the reverse situation it's like (laughs) yeah fine (laughs) okay like sure like that's that's the project here the project is is playing baseball and I think it's especially you know important to keep sight of the fact that while the the individual the the team-wide stakes in this moment were pretty low for San Francisco. That doesn't mean that the individual players involved in this game don't have stakes themselves, right? Like, there's no asterisks next to your game log when you've kind of given it up for the other team because you're ahead by 13 runs, right? Like, we don't blow out adjust your stats in that way. So, you know, if you're Mauricio Dubon and you've played a season's worth of games across four years and you're trying to make a case to be an important part of a contending ball club like you just got to get on base like what are you what are you talking about the stakes for Mauricio Dubon are his career it's not you feeling disappointed and like again I don't want to discount that feeling of disappointment but I think that we have to as individuals like have a moment of self-reflection about how much 
that needs to be the responsibility of of other people. And again, like if they were behaving in a way that felt pointed or mean or or you know inconsiderate, like I guess I'd get it a little bit more. But I I'd, I'd like it if these guys would just come out and say, you know, I wish we had won. It sucks <laughs> that we didn't won. That felt bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's okay for it to feel bad. Saying it feels bad doesn't become this huge statement about the game and playing it a particular way it's like it just is an acknowledgement of your reality like that felt bad i wish it was different like that sucked that Mm -hmm. that'd be fine like eric Hosmer should say that he should be familiar with it one would think (laughs) right yeah and to their slight credit i suppose there was no retaliation or anything they didn't drill anyone the next day what a low bar for us to clear like low bar but they were sure stand-up guys because they didn't throw the baseball (laughs) at the other team like what are we doing that's where the bar has been set by baseball history but yeah instead they just got dominated by logan webb in like a two-hour 13-minute game but yeah. no benches cleared, no brawls happened, nothing. So that was refreshing. But I think I appreciate this, not only just stating it so plainly, not even saying like, oh, I don't have a problem with it, but right. saying like, no, we are actively Yeah, we're <laughs> going to press like, the point. Yeah. And, and of course, it makes sense. It's silly not to. And how can you ask one player who, if the pitcher is trying to get him out, he's just not supposed to get on base or whatever like people are paid based on their results it's nonsense but to make it a team philosophy if the giants are successful if they continue to be a winning team i could see that really breaking down whatever resistance remains and you know the giants are a respected team and a respected organization and a team that's coming off an incredible season so for them to do that with a lot of veteran players I think that furthers the idea that lends some credibility to the idea that we don't have to abide by these old rules anymore. What's interesting to me is Kepler is basically making it sound as if the Giants are doing this, not because they think the unwritten rules are silly, though they are, but because they think that there's an advantage to them in pressing their normal advantage. And that kind of goes along with something that I remember Sam Miller writing for ESPN a few years ago in a very similar situation. I don't recall the exact circumstances, but I think it was a a bunt that was laid down. It involved the twins. It involved Brian Dozier, and Brian Dozier was upset about an opponent's bunt. And the way that Sam broke it down He wrote, unwritten rules are a scam that players run on each other to trick their opponents into acting against their own self-interests. Yes. They are stupid, of course, the unwritten rules, that is. But more than that, they're brilliant on multiple levels, and they seem to work. And ever since I realized this, I've been a lot less annoyed. So Sam pointed out, for example, is that, you know, his goal is not to get the opponent to, quote unquote, respect the game, whatever that means, but to get the Twins opponents to go easy on the Twins. So as Sam wrote, run down the unwritten rules that are most often enforced and almost all of them hit these themes. Don't bunt to break up a no-hitter because we want to throw a (laughs) no-hitter. Brilliant. Don't yell ha right when they're about to catch a pop-up because that would startle us and we might drop it. (laughs) I'm sure it would. Don't bunt 10 times at our pitcher who has the yips because he'll probably mess up and you'll get on base, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's always an ulterior motive here and an advantage to the team. What I wonder, though, and I don't think there needs to be any great advantage to justify doing this because it's only logical to just play to win at all times, but... 
I could imagine that there could be a, a clubhouse chemistry morale boost to this. Like, hey, it's us against the world, right? And we're the yeah. ones who are uh, we're going over the hump here and we're going to take on these old rules about baseball. And maybe that could be a, a bonding exercise. But do you buy the idea that there could really be like a season-long, season-series type of advantage to the Giants in this, you know, the idea of forcing the other pitcher to throw as many pitches as possible, just getting more footage on video, seeing the opposing pitcher more times. Like, do you think that is a significant incentive? Like, is that a reason to do this over and above just why wouldn't you do this? <laughs> I guess I'm skeptical. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm am, skeptical I'm, that yeah. it is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. I think it would be silly to think that there's no advantage, right? Like the idea that you run through part of a bullpen or, you know, tax particular guys that you're able to rest your dudes and like employ lower leverage relievers because you've expanded your lead such that like you don't even think about touching your high leverage guys. Like, yeah, I'm sure there's something to be had there. I don't know that it's all that meaningful. I worry. This isn't like a, I don't know, like I worry about a lot of stuff, so we should state that context from the jump. But also, I am mindful of the fact that the Giants appear to be very smart, and I don't want to assume that everything is smart that they do just because they're the Giants. Do you mm-hmm. ever have that experience with a team where you're like, <laughs> sure. this must be magic? And it's like, you know, like they're still just a baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> like we can. But I have to imagine that someone somewhere was like, here's how many runs teams are leaving on the table every year by not continuing to play baseball hard. Yeah, right. Low leverage runs, of course, unless we're talking about some cumulative effect that manifests itself down the road. I mean, yeah, that's the thing that makes me skeptical. It's like, well, if you're in this sort of blowout situation already, I mean, you're using your garbage time relievers, right, who are probably not going to be the ones who or are in against players, you. Right? right, or a position player, speaking right. of, you know, making a mockery of the game or showing sure. a lack of respect for the game. But right, I mean, you don't need to make a pitching change there just because a guy dropped down a bunt with an enormous lead. It's not like, you know, that's a, a sign that that pitcher was getting knocked around or, or that the left Leverage is suddenly super high. You could just leave him out there and let him wear it or bring in a position player to pitch. So, yeah, you have to make a number of leaps to say this will benefit us down the road because, you know, this domino will hit that domino and this guy will throw a few more pitches and he'll be unavailable the next day. And so you'll use that guy and then he won't be available in this other important moment. It could happen. You know, it would be pretty impossible to measure. And I doubt it would be a significant advantage to me. I I feel like probably the bigger advantage is just like having that be part of your team identity and just like pulling together as, you know, us against them sort of thing. I could see that really bringing a clubhouse together. Yeah, I I could definitely see that. I mean, I think like the, you know, the thing that's going to make the bigger difference coming out of that game is that like, yeah, Alex Cobb just like sits 95 now. So that's, <laughs> right. I know we talked about it on the season preview, but we're going to have to take a peek at Alex Cobb. But right, like, I think that there are far more meaningful changes to individual players or approaches that teams can make to sort of better maximize their wins. And I would imagine that as we stack those up, if we put them on a leaderboard of like big change leaders, that this is probably pretty low on the list. But I do think that it is something that can kind of bring a clubhouse together. And 
I think that anything that pushes back against sort of unexamined and restrictive orthodoxy of like players on the field and how they conduct themselves is going to be to the benefit of your club. Now, some, yeah. some, you know, not every like cultural moray is bad. Like we, we have mm-hmm. to live in a society, right? <laughs> we have rules for one another about how to demonstrate care and respect. And like, I, I think that those things are important, but very rarely do the unwritten rules really concern themselves with that, right? They are far more often concerned with, as Sam noted, like playing less well for <laughs> the benefit of your opponent or controlling the behavior of individual players or whole swaths of players. And so I think that if your organizational philosophy is we're going to try our best, we're going to let our guys try to maximize their performance every single night, you know, that is going to redound to the benefit of the organization because I think people tend to do a better job at work when they feel like they can freely be themselves without scrutiny. And this is, you know, this isn't, this isn't the same as wiping the eye black off of Ronald Acuna Jr. But like, again, I think anytime we are pressing against previously unquestioned orthodoxy and saying like, what if this is really useful to us? Like, what if this really makes sense? What of mm-hmm. it do we want to retain? And what of it are we, have we moved past for whatever reason? Like, I think that's always a good thing to do. Doesn't right. mean you can't respect tradition. It doesn't mean that you can't play with respect for your teammates and for your opponents. Like you can do all of those things, but we, we don't have to take as given these these long-standing rules, like if they are worthwhile, they will bear the weight of scrutiny. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point that maybe if you question this bit of orthodoxy, then you open up minds and, and they suddenly say, well, what about the idea that you're only supposed to throw fastballs in this count yeah. or whatever? You know, maybe we can question that too, yeah. which is something that the Giants have done as well with some success. So yeah. They questioned the unquestioned orthodoxy of Alex Cobb not being able to throw hard anymore. And <laughs> right. look what it got him, an Alex yeah. Cobb that sits 95. How great. Yeah. And speaking of other things that they question, I guess we should note that this game was historic for another reason in that Alyssa Nacken made her on-field debut, right? So Giants coach Alyssa Nacken coached first base, became the first on-field in-game regular season female coach in the majors. The circumstances under which it happened were (laughs) weird and not ideal. So, you know, temperatures were raised and feathers were ruffled. And at some point, Mike Schilt, former Cardinals manager, current Padres third base coach, went over to the Giants dugout to talk to someone. Antoine Richardson, the Giants first base coach, was there and intercepted him and said, you know, as he tells it, can I help you or who you're looking for? And Schilt just uh, seemingly very rudely dismissed him and said to Kapler, control that mf'er which seems totally unwarranted and then richardson came out and said that he thought there could have been racial undercurrents to that comment and subsequently he and schilt talked about it and hugged it out and seemed to have made up so maybe that's under the bridge at this point but it was a a weird way for a cool thing to happen (laughs) but it, it was a cool thing that happened yeah i would really like to hear i know that they are not obligated to do this but we have not heard why 
he was ejected, right? Like we have not no, gotten justification yeah. from the umpire for that. Richardson, yeah. Richard, mm-hmm. right, Richardson was ejected. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that is a moment that probably bears scrutiny for any number of reasons. I think that the sort of aftermath of this, aftermath is maybe like too dramatic of a word to use, <laughs> but it was like, you know, they, they spoke, Richardson and Chilt spoke jointly after they had had a conversation where Richardson sort of explained what that moment stimulated for him and what it it made him feel and the disrespect that he thought it showed. And, you know, I think that he granted grace to Schultz to say, like, this this guy's not a racist and has been supportive of the black community. And Schultz seemed to have listened in a, in a non-defensive posture to try to understand, you know, what he says he meant. I, I love that he's like, I meant it innocuously. I was like, that's a pretty rude thing to say to anyone, regardless of the <laughs> yeah. racial undertones Can you or overtones. Call of it. that innocuously. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't. And you I could don't say re- it in an affectionate way, but that was re- not this. <laughs> yeah, and to be clear, I don't. I'd need to look at at his quote again. I don't know if innocuous is quite the word he used, but that was the sort of gist of it that he didn't he didn't mean it to convey anything with particular racial overtones, but was willing to listen to the ways in which he might have missed the mark on that and and the way that that interaction made Richardson feel, which, you know, if you're going to have any kind of move forward, like, I think that we have to look at moments like that as, you know, potentially uncomfortable, but learning opportunities, right? So yeah, it was a very, it was an unfortunate backdrop to a really cool moment. And I think, you know, we have to acknowledge the backdrop as well as the moment. Mm -hmm. But I really would like to know what the umpire justification for the ejection was there. Because that seems like, did he think that Richardson had said Right, for, I, like I, I, I don't, don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's just a strange thing to say. <laughs> Whatever motivated yeah. it, dismissive and condescending at best. And, and, and I, far I can too see. large for the moment. And I can yeah. appreciate how. I mean, like, I won't pretend that I would know how that would feel being in Richardson's shoes. So I don't. Right, wanna, I, I can you know. understand the baggage that goes with that. So, yeah. so <laughs> I guess like it is good that out of that moment seemed to appear some candid dialogue that was that was really listened to rather than you know not but yeah it was a weird it was a weird backdrop for a very otherwise cool moment so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i don't I- know <laughs> but hopefully there are future circumstances where you know members of the coaching staff can take the field without it being the result of another member yes. of the coaching staff having been <laughs> ejected seemingly for not a good reason like right. you, you know yeah. so there's that piece of it but it was it was a very cool moment like it's i think it's important to acknowledge those firsts even as we look forward to them not being remarkable you know mm-hmm. it, it'll be nice when we don't we don't have to feel as if they need to to be called out as something special yeah we just look around and are like here here are a bunch of our great coaches they come from all sorts of places and they bring a lot to our game you know mm-hmm. yeah All right. Well, those were the watershed moments of the week. Those were all things that I think situated us in this particular time. (laughs) I don't think any of those things would have or could have or would have been likely to happen in an earlier era of baseball. And, you know, for better or worse, maybe for better and worse, (laughs) I think they, to varying degrees, reflected some negative and some positive and some maybe neutral and case-by-case basis changes in the sport. So we have discussed There were many happenings involving many different people (laughs) that took on a variety of tones, and we have commented on some of them. 
Yes. Now, a few <laughs> final notes. Uh, you mentioned Cobb looking good. Yeah. One of my favorite things about a new season is just like seeing players who seemingly have suddenly reached some new level of performance or they have yeah. some new trick, some new pitch. They ticked up in velocity. They're pitching in a different way, whatever it is. So it could be Cobb. It could be Andrew Heaney who yeah. dominated the Twins uh, in addition to Kershaw doing so. And he showed off his new sweeper that is all the rage right now. Everyone throws the sweeper, or as the Yankees call it, the whirly, right? The new sort of side-to-side slider that all the cool, analytically-oriented teams are throwing these days. So he looked good, and Jesus Lizardo looked really good, which I know Ben Clemens wrote about for fan graphs, right? He was throwing a lot harder, and he dominated the Angels and had 12 strikeouts in five innings. So that's exciting, because if he is putting it together now, then that Marwin staff is scary. Oh, so, baby. <laughs> yep. So that that was exciting, too. So I love that. I mean, love seeing, you know, Vlad Jr. come out and just lay waste to Garrett Cole and the Yankees. Like, yeah. after having his fingers split open by a spike. <laughs> yeah, that was gross. doesn't happen so much anymore. That used to be very common, very dangerous in the it was early one of days the worst of baseball. things about baseball. Yeah, and like before antibiotics so there would be like (laughs) life-threatening infections when when guys got spiked and they had like really sharp spikes like dangerous like can't believe that that happened for so long on fields in this sport but it did anyway he stayed in the game and what he hit a couple more homers after that so that's just you know i mean it's a cliche to say like oh the ball sounds different off his bat or whatever but it it does really it does in his case so (laughs) i personally love this time of year as long as we all go in clear-eyed that like some of the things that we're noticing right now and i don't mean to say that like all of a sudden like alex cobb sinker isn't gonna be hard anymore but like you know we as long as we go in understanding that this is like you know what at most eight games six games not very many games and that it could all change tomorrow and that the the stars of today could be the scrubs of next week like as long as as long as we know that and do not invest overly much in early season narratives and think that they will persist forever then we just get to revel in stuff that is goofy to it mm-hmm. <laughs> have you had a look at vladimir guerrero jr's line no <laughs> would you like to hear about yes, it please. ben are you ready Mm-hmm. He is currently hitting 391, 417, 957. <laughs> he has uh-huh. a 283 WRC plus. Yeah. I love like his OPS doubled in that one yeah. game, which yeah, is sure a, a sign that it's April, but also oh, a yeah. sign that he went four for four with three homers and a double. So yes. <laughs> that'll do it. <laughs> I mean, I think that like a responsible analyst would note that there is a gap for instance, between his his WOBA and his ex-WOBA. But I would also note that his WOBA is 583 and his ex-WOBA is 558. And again, it's 24 plate appearances. Like, he's going to be great because he's a really good baseball player. He obviously won't do this, but who cares? Like, we just get to have fun with this part. He has a 565 ISO. Oh, what a thing. <laughs> you know, it's just like sometimes, uh, sometimes it's great. You know, sometimes we fall prey 
to a misunderstanding of ourselves in the early going. Like Albert Pujols tried to steal a base today, like as we were recorded, and he was thrown out by quite a distance. Oh, was he? Because he's yeah. been quite successful in the rare I know, times when but, he's gone. <laughs> yeah, but not this time, Ben. This okay. time didn't go great for him. Like it's you think that the thing's being slowed down, and it's not. But who cares? It doesn't matter. We're not going to remember that tomorrow. We're probably not going to remember uh, that six months he from been now. Cut since 2015. I know. It's been a while. Oh. Yeah, it's been a while. But sometimes we get to just enjoy stuff in the early going and we get to enjoy, you know, Vladdy being just like really stinking good at baseball and hitting the ball Mm -hmm. really far and it going a long, long way. So, yeah. Yeah. And now we get to enjoy Mackenzie Gore on Friday. We talked about all the top prospects who have come up so far this season. We're getting another one because Blake Snell is hurt. Man, I mean, the Padres... They just acquire a new rotation's worth of starters every offseason, and somehow they find themselves dipping into the reserves nonetheless. But in this case, it is not the dregs that they were calling up last year. It's Mackenzie Gore, who seemingly has rehabilitated himself. So we talked a little bit about him with Eric Longenhagen when he was on to talk about the Fangraphs Top 100, which Gore was not on, right? And that was sort of a, a swift fall for him on that list and on many other publications lists too because not only did he not make it to the majors but he really seemed out of whack mechanically and there was some question about when or whether he would get things together seems like he has because he had a fantastic spring training he had a great first start in the minors and now he is coming up to replace Snell so we're gonna get to see him make his major league debut on Friday so that's another thing to look forward to it is another thing to look forward to I'm excited to see what he looks like now Mm-hmm. Can I read you our top 10 for position players in war right now? Sure. Because yeah, it's just fun. It's, it's the beginning of the season. Let's sure. go. Let's let's do it. Jose Ramirez. Pretty good. Okay. J-Man yeah. Choi. Very huh. fun. Owen Miller. Sure. Stephen Kwan. Yep. Nolan Arenado. Austin Riley. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Brandon Nimmo. Seiya Suzuki. <laughs> and Matt Olson. That is your current top 10. As you might imagine, there are a number of guys who have the exact same wars, both Brandon Nimmo <laughs> and Seiya Suzuki. In fact, the tie extends all the way down to Brandon Bilt at 16. The ones above him include Anthony Rizzo, George Springer, Wander Franco, Anthony Santander. So that's exciting. And then belt as i mentioned we just love we love the early going we get to be excited about stuff and you know right now clayton kershaw's on the top of our pitcher leaderboard so maybe we should just stop the season right now <laughs> tim and tyler mcgill just like we all expected i'd rather keep it going because uh otani's pitching in a couple hours so <gasps> I, think, right. I think we should play this out a little longer but speaking of Pujols, we got a lot of people notifying us about maybe the first notable player prediction of the season we got into talking about this last season and then it turned out that it was so common that people were like constantly emailing us yeah. and tweeting us about it but the idea that players are are predicting things that happen in in baseball games and we complain about the fact that there's never a denominator we never hear about the times when they predicted something that didn't come true well Pujols hit his first home run for the Cardinals and he called a shot So as the MLP.com story relates it, some three hours before Tuesday's first pitch, Pujols left the batting cage and called his shot to Cardinals manager Oliver Marmol. 
Basically, Pujols told Marmol he was seeing the ball well and he was about to jump on the first pitch he saw and do some serious damage with it. And indeed, he did. And he said later, you know, when you have 680 home runs, sometimes you can make those calls. I guess that was one of those where I felt good out there. I had a good feeling about the approach I was going to take tonight. And sometimes you get lucky and it happens. So kudos to him, not only for calling it, but then acknowledging that there was luck involved. (laughs) So I appreciate that. But yeah, he sure has hit a lot of homers in his day. So if anyone knows the homerish feeling, it would be Albert Pujols. But I do appreciate that he acknowledged he is not necessarily prescient or unerring in his predictions. It just happened to work out this time. Yeah, I think uh, that seems fine. That seems mm-hmm. good. Good. You know, that's the wisdom of age. I mean, not the wisdom <laughs> to not try to steal bases, but the wisdom of age nonetheless. <laughs> All right. And lastly, on the topic of predicting things and probabilities, I don't know whether you were watching either of the Apple broadcasts last Friday, whether you went through the hassle of signing up for Apple TV Plus, which I already had in order to... I already to... had it. So yeah. I okay. Did. I did. I, I didn't watch all of both of them, but I did mm-hmm. check in on them because, you know, they were good games. Right. So they know what they're doing, those scamps. Yeah, and so it's an MLB Network produced broadcast, but some of the production choices were made at Apple's behest, and maybe the most notable one was the near constant presence of probabilities in the bottom right corner of the screen that would say probability of reaching base, probability of getting a hit, probability of a strikeout, of a home run, it would vary. And I don't know that I'm on board with the very concept of this, which in execution I think I I found maybe less interesting than I might have thought in theory. But beyond that, the actual numbers seemed like nonsense to me. Some of them seemed very wrong. Yeah, I mean, they were taking a ton of flack on Twitter to the point where – I was almost like taken aback that they left the things up the whole yeah. game and multiple games because it was like it seemed so obviously wrong to me yes. that it was like cringeworthy. It was like a little bit embarrassing, especially on your debut broadcast. I mean, for one thing, the fact that they went out to a second decimal place, like, yeah. okay, the level of precision here does not require that. But beyond that, it it just it seemed like the numbers would move too dramatically from pitch to pitch or they would move in the wrong wrong direction direction. yeah yes and people took a lot of screenshots and there were some that were just so far-fetched where it would be like a great hitter in a favorable count with like a really low probability of reaching base in that plate appearance and and vice versa and the count would move more in their favor exactly right the probability would get worse yeah (laughs) right it it made no sense to me at, at many times and so I had a lot of questions about this. So Joe Lemire, former Effectively Odd guest, I believe, he wrote a piece about this for Sport Techie, and he documented at least where these numbers come from. And it turns out that they are provided by a company called Invenue. N, the letter N, and then Venue, and they are a company that produces these live predictive algorithms, and of course, this is closely connected to sports betting, you (laughs) had to figure. There were a a few like actual 
lines and odds given during those broadcasts. But the framework here is clearly meant to provide a framework for sports betting and for micro betting. And so I'll read from the story here. Apple initiated the interest in displaying the on-screen probabilities. And then MLB Network selected in view, in view, in, in venue, and venue <laughs> as the supplier of real-time algorithms, which are calculated using Sport Radar's data feed. And venue is a graduate of the 2021 Comcast NBC Universal Sports Tech Accelerator and made its broadcast debut during regional NBC Sports California coverage of a White Sox athletic series in September 2021. So they can do this uh, for outcomes on any given pitch and also outcomes for the plate appearance that vary by pitch. And they are going to keep doing this, it sounds like. And the quote from the CEO, Kelly Proctor Proct, is the first instantiation is to see it to start to understand probabilities, which, uh, if anything, it, it had the opposite effect for me. I, I understood probabilities less after I saw these numbers and was uh, caused to question myself. But Proct or Proct says, and she's a, a former Hewitt Packard enterprise executive. In venues, machine learning algorithms consider 120 inputs from the field of play, including not only batter and pitcher historical data, but temperature, wind, and much more. The founding team includes tech experts with experience at Verizon and Tinder, mm. and its signature product is the NextPlay API that is available to sportsbooks and broadcasters for MLB and NFL games. So, I don't know, seeing the numbers... I kind of question, I mean, it, I don't know the makeup of the entire team, but it doesn't sound like they necessarily have a sports background. And so I I question, this could be unfair to me, but I, I wonder whether some of the people who are developing these probabilities even are qualified to sort of sniff test them and see if they make sense from pitch to pitch. But the idea of 120 inputs, I, I mean, that sounds a bit overdetermined for me I'm, I'm all for complexity if it actually enhances accuracy but i don't know that there could possibly be 120 inputs in that moment that would have some appreciable effect on improving your probabilities here and just the way that they fluctuated and seemingly moved in the wrong direction and even the ceo gives an example in this article so she says she recalled that Braves designated hitter Jorge Soler opened with a 2% chance of homering against Astros starter Framber Valdez in last year's World Series, which increased to 3% after ball one. Fine. The second pitch was also a ball, at which point Soler's homer potential grew to 19%. Soler then slugged a 2-0 fastball into the left field seats. Okay, fine. It worked out to a degree there, but... That, that can't possibly be right. It can't no. possibly be right that the odds of a homer for Jorge Soler there were 19% and that it would jump from 3% after no. ball one to 19% after ball two. That's impossible, right? Yeah. I mean, that's impossible that on its face. Wrong. Like just looking at his career splits after 2 0 counts in Jorge Soler's career, he's homered 14 times in 385 plate appearances that started that way. That's 3.6% of the time. So, okay, maybe this was Jorge Soler in a good year and he had the platoon advantage and, I don't know, maybe the wind was blowing out or whatever. There's just no way that nope. you can get to 19% or that one ball could catapult you from 3% to 19%. That's ridiculous. And so 
the idea that this is the example that the CEO chose to demonstrate the utility of the system, like, gives me grave doubts <laughs> that this thing is actually working. And so... Put aside the fact that this is going to lead to some sort of uh, micro-wagering apocalypse, uh, the CEO also said that her company devised approximately 15,000 ways to bet on baseball, but will be measured in the rollout with a plan to use tech to pump up the right thing to bet on so that fans aren't inundated with options while scrolling through betting markets in the short interval between pitches. The idea is to provide enough context to help bettors make informed wagers because, of course, we know that if there's one thing that uh, betting companies want wagerers to do, it's it's to make informed wagers, you know, not to lose their money. Right. I mean, they, uh, they want you to win money, of course. Uh, they're right. not preying on people with gambling problems or anything right. like that. So, So anyway, that gives me some cause for concern about just how pervasive this will be. But more than that, I, I really think like, you know, she's talking here about how some social media commentary has implied that there was a problem with the odds and that really it's people misunderstanding probability because they don't understand that something that is unlikely to happen can still happen. No, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> On Kelly, board with that part. <laughs> I I say that about right. Our playoff odds all the time. Yes, yeah. We know Some what that means. Some people may misunderstand that, yeah, but, but we yes, know what that means. We get that uh, that rare events can occur, but it just the underlying numbers just do not make sense. No. And so when she says that's where, as sports fans, instead of saying, "Oh, that was wrong," probably it's that you saw something great, which is why you watched the game. Can it be both? It could be wrong. And also we saw yes. something great. So I like the idea that, uh, you know, if, if something seems wrong, <laughs> that just means that we saw something great, not that we saw some broken probability model here. So, you know, and Joe pressed her on this seemingly and, and asked about an instance where a player's chance of a hit increased when the count changed from 01 to 02. When asked about this. Proct explained that only probability was shown on the screen, and in some instances, a chance of a hit might go up, while the chance of striking out might also be increasing, while another probability, say taking a walk, may have plummeted to ensure that everything still added up to 100%. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes of that number. You're just seeing one little swatch. Well... Okay, I mean, still, I think the swatch that we're seeing is pretty important. It has to make some sort of sense, and we have to understand what these numbers are supposed to indicate, which I don't think the broadcast did a great job of conveying. Maybe I missed that part, but also, I don't think that that totally holds water for me either, that explanation. Uh -uh. So. Again, I, I think they might have to revisit this. <laughs> you know, Maybe, I mean, look, if they supply the underlying numbers here and it turns out that uh, actually they're brain geniuses and, and I'm the one who's misinterpreting these numbers, I will happily own up to that. But it just totally did not make sense in many instances to me. And so that I found distracting. And I guess there's the larger question of, you know, do we even want or need this, even if the probabilities are accurate, even if they reflect reality, does it actually enhance our enjoyment of the broadcast to see that so-and-so has a 19% chance of doing something? I mean, whatever, like maybe that just spoils it for you in a way because uh, you're focused on the probabilities or maybe it makes it seem like, well, it's just random that it actually happened in, in this version of the multiverse. And, you know, it's all meaningless because uh, in other universes it could have happened a, a different way. I, I don't know that I actually want this, even if it works, but I don't think it works in its current form. 
Yeah, I don't think it works in its current form. I'm not opposed to, like, I think that part of what understanding probabilities can do is to highlight the moments where you're like, wow, I'm watching something incredible because this was right. very unlikely to occur. But that feeling is only earned if you have faith in the underlying math that tells you that what you're seeing is rare and rare to the right degree. Like, you know, I remember there were a, a number of folks who were sort of worked up last year because we had a couple of teams that went on these like really amazing runs and and just flipped their playoff odds from basically nothing to 100%, right? This happened with the Cardinals. They went on this 17-game run, and it was amazing. And people were like, the Fangraphs playoff odds were wrong. And I'm like, well, no, you just saw something really cool. Like, that's mm -hmm. the way to interpret this information. But the reason that we're able to say that is because we had confidence in our underlying understanding of like how rare it is to have that happen against the backdrop of what was going on in the rest of the division, right? Like it, mm -hmm. if you don't have a firm understanding of the actual like scarcity of the thing, you're not going to be able to get excited about it. And right. I think it's appropriate for us to be skeptical when we're being sold something, right? So I don't know. I just, I don't think that the answer of, well, people don't like math. It's like, no, the people who like math are the ones right. who are like, what is going on with your math? Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. So we'll see if the probabilities persist this Friday and if they look any different and any more logical. But right. I, I mean, I appreciate win probability stats yeah. and WPA and looking at that after the fact, I think in particular. And Maybe we don't represent the mainstream audience that the Apple broadcast well, we is trying to target, right? So, yeah, we super you know, don't. We have kind of a, a hardwired sense of these probabilities. Not that we're like laser accurate from pitch to pitch, but you know, we have an idea of this pitcher is good and that hitter is good, and you have the platoon advantage or you don't. And we know enough to know that, like, if the count goes from you know, <laughs> right. yeah. one to oh two, that your odds of getting a hit probably don't go up. Yes, I. Yeah. Yes, I feel fairly confident in, in how the count affects probabilities of, of positive outcomes occurring. So maybe if you're just getting introduced to baseball, maybe it could be helpful to have your hand held there and to see, okay, this is unlikely to happen, so I should calibrate my expectations accordingly. And then if it doesn't happen, I can not be super disappointed. Or if it does happen, I can be extra excited. So having some appreciation of the rarity of something and the unlikelihood, that can make you appreciate it more. So maybe it's just a, a me thing where it's like I kind of have like a, a very rough and fuzzy sort of model like this in my head just from yeah. watching a lot of baseball and knowing some stuff about baseball numbers. and so. Maybe seeing it on the screen is kind of overkill, whereas, you know, if you're just getting introduced to the sport, I could see it being like almost, you know, watching uh, friends in a different language, you know, to to learn that language or, you know, like people who speak not English as a, a native tongue and then they watch a lot of friends and they're able to learn how to speak English from that. Maybe this would be the way to sort you of- You never get to pick another walk-up song ever again in your entire <laughs> life. Yeah. You get to learn baseball by watching along with the probabilities. I, I could see some appeal there, but as long as they are properly calibrated and they're not filling your head with misconceptions about the sport. so It just, it just seems like the sort of thing that it doesn't need to be on the screen all the time. Like it yeah. can, it can right. be at, at used. Notable times, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it can be used to highlight like high leverage moments. It could be used, you know, and it, it also doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that has to occur in real time. Like there 
there can be editorial direction to the use of those stats. Like maybe when you use them is like, is when Jorge Soler hits a home run and you want to help people understand just how likely or unlikely that moment was. Like it doesn't need to be a ticker tape the whole time that he's mm-hmm. up there batting. It can happen after he does the cool thing. Cause like if he had struck out in that moment, like we wouldn't care. That wouldn't be cool. That would be him striking out. Like he does that sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. it isn't to say that it can't be reworked into something that makes some amount of sense and that could enhance particular moments and inform people. But I think that it's going to be tricky to do that because we look at moments like this as like an opportunity to tell the viewer something about the game that they didn't know. And this company views it as an opportunity to make you place a micro bet. And so I don't think that those things are working in tandem or because like you said, it's not as if the house doesn't want you to know all the stuff. There's a reason we don't let people count cards. I mean, we 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 might say go to town, but like casinos don't let you do it. And it's not because... <laughs> it's because they want to take your money like come on mm-hmm. yeah and when you're changing the metric from plate appearance to plate appearance i found myself looking and, and suddenly the numbers changed and it was like whoa wait that can't be right oh okay for some reason before it was your probability of reaching base whereas now it's your probability of making it out it's like yeah. let's standardize it at least so i know what i'm looking at so yeah or just choose selectively certain numbers to highlight anyway we'll see maybe they yeah. will change or improve the presentation anyway That will do it for today. Send us some emails, please. And we think and we intend (laughs) to get to them next time. Yes. All right. So we started this week by talking about a successfully completed perfect game by Roki Sasaki. This time we talked about a perfect game that was interrupted after seven innings. Who knows what lies in store for our final episode of the week. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Caroline H., Chris Miller, Lucas, Michael Santana, and Olive. Thanks to all of you. That was not an Olive pun, but thank you, Olive. Patreon perks, of course, include a couple of playoff live streams, monthly bonus pods, access to the Patreon-only Discord group, and many more. Please do check it out. You can also check out and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg via email at podcast.vangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Never be. You can see them running.